Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome to Tell Me Everything here on SiriusXM Progress. My name's Joe Sudby. I'm going to be with you tonight, filling in for John. Always appreciate this opportunity, and I especially appreciate the opportunity to do this on this day, October 13th, which is 26 days till November 8th. But more importantly, we had a hearing from the January 6th committee today. Oh, my God. Wow. 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 It was so powerful. Every one of these hearings has been. We've talked about them on this channel. We have talked about them, you know, extensively every time there was a hearing. And today's was sort of the wrap up. But I just have to tell you, it was stunning. And, and I feel like I use that term with each one of these hearings. In each one of these hearings, we get a little bit of information in the beginning. And it's kind of leaked a little bit what to expect, what we might hear about. But my God, today we got so much more information. And what we got was information that is devastating for Donald Trump and the Republicans who suck up to him. Today, it became so clear, so clear, as Liz Cheney said, the central cause of January 6th was one man, Donald Trump. The chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson from Mississippi, who was terrific, so this is a question about accountability to the American people. He must be accountable. Absolutely. Absolutely he must be accountable. And if there's one thing that Donald Trump has made a career out of, it is not being accountable to anyone. Today, it was just a constant barrage of information and a reminder of Trump's central role throughout the whole attempted coup. We also got a lot more information today about the fact that Trump knew he lost. He knew. He knew he lost. You know, he kept going out and speaking to his rallies and writing on Twitter and storming around saying he won, it was stolen. He knew he lost. Most of his aides had told him. He admitted it. Many people heard him admit it. Cassidy Hutchison, we saw a clip of her today. He said, I don't want people to know that we lost. This is embarrassing. He said that to Mark Meadows. Wait, so let's just put this into context for a second. Because the president of the United States lost his election, a free and fair election, free of fraud, lost by 7 million plus votes, he was embarrassed. He was embarrassed. And because he was embarrassed, he launched a coup. He launched a coup. Several people died. 140 police officers were injured. Many of the insurrectionists are in prison or on trial. Some for many, many years. Because it was embarrassing to Donald Trump. I mean, just think about that for a minute. It's un... It should be unbelievable 
but it's not. It is our reality. This is what we're dealing with. We are dealing with a president who really thinks he is above the law and that nothing matters except for him. And he got the whole party to go along with him. I mean, we saw clips today of Mitch McConnell right after January 6th standing on the Senate floor blaming Donald Trump. We saw Kevin McCarthy doing the same thing. Those pathetic pieces of shit. They never stood up to Donald Trump. They did it for about 20 minutes on January 6th, and then they went right back to their regular roles of sucking up to him, especially that McCarthy. It's pathetic. I will say the other thing, though, that we did see who was a fierce hero on that day, Nancy Pelosi. Some of the video we saw of Nancy Pelosi today, wow, wow. She was under attack. People were coming into the Capitol to kill her. And she just kept moving, kept trying to solve the problem, kept trying to figure out how to get protection for the Capitol. She was so damn good. That, that's one of my big takeaways from today was just how good Nancy Pelosi was in this situation. Now, the denouement of the uh, hearing today was that there is a subpoena for Donald Trump, but I want to play a clip of Chairman Benny Thompson reflecting on the gravity of the moment and why they have to subpoena him. Let's play clip A2. It is our obligation to seek Donald Trump's testimony. There's precedent in American history for Congress to compel the testimony of a president, president. There's also precedent for presidents to provide testimony and documentary evidence to congressional investigators. We also recognize that a subpoena to a former president is a serious and extraordinary action. That's why we want to take this step in full view of the American people, especially because the subject matter at issue is so important to the American people and the stakes are so high for our future and our democracy. And so I recognize the vice chair, Ms. Cheney of Wyoming to offer a motion. Mr. Chairman, pursuant to today's notice, I send to the desk a committee resolution and ask for its immediate consideration. The clerk will report the resolution. Committee Resolution 1, resolved that the chairman be and is hereby directed to subpoena Donald J. Trump for documents and testimony in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol pursuant to Section 5C4 of House Resolution 503 and Clause 2M of Rule 11 of the Rules of the House of Representatives. Wow, so that's how it happened. That was at the close of the hearing. And all through the show, I'm going to play some clips of conversations that were happening throughout the hearing. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking to Brandy Bookman from Daily Coast, who has covered these hearings from their inception. I just, I've been able to talk to her on this channel before in different shows. She's a terrific reporter, and she's going to help us unpack what we saw what it means, some, provide some context. And I'll play some more clips throughout the show, too. In the next hour, we've got Max Burns. I want to talk to him about the politics of it. What does this mean politically? What does it mean now that we have the issue of defending democracy front and center once again? You guys, in the final hour, we've got Daniel Nishinian, a.k.a. Daniel. He's released his newest version of What's on the Ballot, which is just the go-to guide. And it is so important for everyone who's paying attention to our elections, which I know most of you are. And I, I'm looking forward to that. He, he published it this week, and I was so happy that I was guest hosting so we could have him come on and talk about some of the races up and down the ballot. You know, I love talking about races up and down the ballot. I love talking about races for state legislature. I think we have to pay more attention to what's happening, not just at the gubernatorial level, not just at the United States Senate level, not just at 
the U.S. House. Although all of those are incredibly important, I also think it's important that we talk about statewide elected offices like secretaries of state and attorneys general. And guess what? In just a minute, we're going to be talking to the current attorney general from Wisconsin, Josh Call. He's running for election this year. And I, Wisconsin, as you all know, is an incredibly important state. And the governor, Tony Evers, is up for re-election. We've got the Senate race with Mandela Barnes. And Josh Call is also running for re-election as attorney general. He has been on the forefront of so many of the important issues. And I am so glad to welcome you tonight to tell me everything. Welcome to the show, Attorney General Call. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's you've been the attorney general for four years now. Uh, You won in 2018 by 17,000 votes. It's a very competitive state. Just take a minute to introduce yourself to our audience. Many of them will know you, but just just let let, just brag about yourself because there's a lot to brag about. Well, well, thank you. Uh, I am a husband and dad. Uh, I'm a former federal prosecutor. Uh, I was an assistant U.S. attorney in Baltimore where I prosecuted murderers, gang members, and drug traffickers. Uh, I spent part of my career doing voting rights litigation, challenging laws that restrict access to voting. And in 2018, I was uh, elected attorney general. I won by 0.65 percentage points. Uh, It was the only race in the country that year was sitting uh, attorney general defeated. And um, as attorney general, my top priority has been public safety. Uh, We have done everything from investigating, prosecuting incredibly serious crimes to uh, fighting for reform of our sexual assault kit laws to going after pharmaceutical companies uh, to making our schools safer and and worked on a number of other issues as well. All of those are really incredibly important issues. And You know, I I think um, the one that just jumped out the most for me is something that you've really been on the front lines of, and that is the um, going after the pharmaceutical companies that that have helped um, instigate the opioid crisis. Talk a little bit about the work you did there. You know, when I took office, my my predecessor had not been particularly active in the opioid cases going on around the country. Um, and we changed that. I uh, sued Purdue Pharma, which manufactured OxyContin and played a major role in ushering in the opioid epidemic. Um, we also joined multi-state investigations into opioid distributors. And, uh, you know, Purdue has gone into bankruptcy and we and other states are pursuing recovery. Um, but uh, pharmaceutical distributors and another manufacturer uh, ultimately settled a, a massive nationwide case. I believe the second largest nationwide settlement of all time. Um, that's going to bring uh, over $400 million to my home state of Wisconsin to support efforts to fight the opioid epidemic. Um, you know, the, this epidemic has been devastating for people around the country. And the pandemic and then the introduction of so much fentanyl into, uh, into communities has really exacerbated it. And having these resources to fight back against the epidemic is going to be critical as we work to turn the corner on it. Right. I often feel like um, Purdue Pharma went out and created a market for, you know, for the cartels. It's and, and seeing them being held accountable is so incredibly important. So thank you for that work you're doing. I, I, I'm from Maine and Maine has had a terrible um, opioid problem as well. One of the other things, you know, you you have a history of protecting voting rights from your career before you were attorney general. Really, Voting rights are so essential, as is just our democracy. And certainly your state was on the front lines in 2020 and the fallout since then. Um, talk a little bit about the, that work and how <laughs> the kind of work you're doing to make sure that our elections are safe, but also that, you know, we have a democracy. You know, there are a lot of reasons that this is an important race, but the reason it's really important, really for the whole country, is protection of our democracy. Um, you know, we saw um, attacks on voting rights prior to the 20 election. We've seen attacks on voting rights after. Um, one example is that uh, there was an act to purge tens of thousands of voters from our voter rolls in Wisconsin. And I 
we defended against that challenge. Um, I personally argued that case in our state Supreme Court, and we won 5-2, keeping those voters from being purged from the rolls. Um, in the lead up to the 2020 election, you probably remember, we did joy slowed down the mail, um, which prevented absentee ballots from being received in time. And we joined with other states uh, to challenge uh, what happened in the mail and got an order that uh, stopped them from continuing to move forward with their cutbacks. Um, we had this fake investigation conducted after the election here by a former state Supreme Court Justice, Michael Gableman. I, I stood up against that. And after the 2020 election, Wisconsin was one of the states that Donald Trump targeted to try to overturn the results. And my administration defended the results, uh, will of the voters in court in every one of those cases. And, and we won them all. But it's important to note that one of those cases in our state Supreme Court was decided four to three. Um, we have a four to three conservative majority, and one of the conservative justices ruled with the progressive justices and upheld the results. But but that's how close we were to having our election results in Wisconsin thrown into chaos. And if we had had an AG who, instead of standing up for the will of the voters, had embraced you know conspiracy theories or false claims about widespread fraud or, or argued that election commissioners had violated the law, um, who knows what would have happened. But, but we've got to have an AG in Wisconsin who's going to protect the will of the voters if our results are challenged again. Uh, it's so important. And I'm, I'm so glad you added that part at the end, because it really does matter who is in these positions. And as you said, you won by 0.65%, about 17,000 votes. These races can be incredibly close. And another issue that, of course, is comp so front and center is the issue of abortion, Wisconsin actually has a very old law that bans abortion. Talk about that and what you're doing to protect the rights of pregnant people in your state. The law in Wisconsin goes back to 1849, which is um, decades before women won the right to vote. It's even before the Civil War. Uh, and yet, uh, now that Roe has been overturned, that law is impacting the lives of people in Wisconsin. Um, we have begun to, to hear some of the stories about the impacts that people knew this would have, but it's, it's really tragic to hear these, these stories directly, and, and not just in Wisconsin. You, know, you and your listeners are probably familiar with the story about the 10-year-old girl in Ohio who had to travel to Indiana to obtain um, the health care that she needed. Um, in Wisconsin, a woman had a partial miscarriage and was left to bleed for 10 days before she was able to get a doctor to intervene and provide the kind of care that that was needed. And even in cases that don't result in tragedies, you know, one OBGYN told me that people have started to come in with planned pregnancies and what used to be some of the most joyous appointments they had. And now sometimes they come in and they're terrified about what's going to happen if there's a complication. And if you think about parents who are trying to have a second or third child who are worried about potentially leaving uh, their kids at home without a parent, um, it's not right. And we are fighting back against that. Four days after uh, the Dobbs decision came out, I filed a lawsuit uh, that challenges the enforceability of our 19th century ban and argues that it is not enforceable, uh, in part because laws were passed after Roe that are inconsistent with it. We've called on our legislature repeatedly to repeal the, the 19th century ban. The governor has uh, called for action. He's called special sessions. But so far, Republicans have refused to act. And this election is going to have a direct consequence on access to abortion, but it's also going to send a very powerful message. And, and there are really two messages that could be sent. If Republicans do really well in this election, it's going to send a message that the Supreme Court can take people's rights away and there's not a political consequence for that. On the other hand, if Democrats do well in this election, better than expected, I think it's going to send a very different message that if you take people's rights away, you're going to be held accountable at the ballot box. I think that's really important. And I think, you know, one of the things that's important for everybody to know, too, about Wisconsin is your opponent, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about your opponent, but your opponent is, wouldn't rule out using the resources of the Department of Justice in the state of Wisconsin, your, you know, limited resources that you must defend, um, you know, public safety and the opioid epidemic and all the other things you've mentioned. And he would 
he won't rule out using those resources to prosecute abortions, even in the case of rape and incest. And that, to me, is just astounding and very frightening. Yeah, that's that's exactly what he has said. And, and he said he would lead efforts to enforce our, our abortion ban. And, you know, we've got an investigative agency with about 90 special agents. Um, we have criminal prosecutors and having them going around our state investigating abortions um, and even in cases involving rape or incest is, is just wrong. And his priorities uh, are wrong. I mean, he's also embraced the, the bogus investigation into our elections that was conducted by Michael Gableman. He's claimed that several of our election commissioners committed crimes and should be removed from office. Um, we can't go in that far right direction in our AG's office. Um, and, you know, we're going to have a close race. I won by 0.65 percentage points last time. And uh, we expect to have a, a very close race again this year, but uh, people are are fired up to get out and vote. And while I expect it to be close, I'm also uh, confident and we're going to keep working hard. Well, since you brought that up, the campaign and how how hard it's going to be, how can people help uh, help you win in November on November 8th? Uh, well, they can go to our website, joshcall.org and support our campaign. We uh, appreciate uh, support of all kinds from people and and if folks want to help us out, I, I think probably all of your listeners know how critical a state Wisconsin is in the national political picture. We were the, the tipping point state in the last two presidential elections. Um, and in addition to my race, we've got a critical U.S. Senate race and governor's race here this year. So, uh, you know, we've got less than a month to go. Now is the time to get involved and, and to help us get over the finish line in Wisconsin. Right. There's so much at, at stake. And, you know, um, I'm always banging the drum for the um the down ballot races are so critically important. And I think this year, more than ever, people uh, understand that. So let me, before I, I let you go, um, Attorney General Call, you've been out campaigning. You campaigned in 2018. You're campaigning now. What's the difference this year and what's the energy like on the ground in Wisconsin? COVID has definitely had an impact on people. I think um, there's there's been a lot of social isolation and there have been a lot of consequences that have come from that. Um, and um, people are, are, are not happy, I think, with the state of politics. There's so much gridlock and so much partisanship, but they're really fired up to get out and vote and to make a difference in their communities. Um, I think a lot of people are really unhappy with what the Supreme Court has done in overturning uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, and, you know, I think having politicians who uh, are, are out ignoring the will of the voters, um, like we've seen with uh, my opponent and Ron Johnson and Tim Michaels, who's running against the governor, I, I think that's not going to be successful this year, um, but but it's going to be really high turnout. And, and I think we're going to see a lot of people showing up at the polls. Well, the one thing we also know is you guys have a terrific state party chair and Ben Wickler. He is terrific and he 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 really um, infuses a lot of energy. And uh, and that's just it shows uh, from around from from around the country. So best of luck to you, Attorney General Josh Call on Twitter at Josh Call. W-I, Josh Call, Wisconsin, K-A-U-L. And again, the website, joshcall.org. These races are so important. And you just heard the attorney general explain just how important it is. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Wow. This is Joe Sudbay. We are going to take a quick break here on Tell Me Everything. I'm so glad that the attorney general from Wisconsin could join us. I mean, you guys, you guys know if you've ever heard me, if you've heard me on State of the States, I am obsessed with these races, and I'm just really honored he could come. 17,000 votes, you guys. We need to win that one. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you 
where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Just had a really great conversation with the Attorney General from Wisconsin, Josh Call. And in a minute or two, we're going to be joined by Brandy Bookman from Daily Coast, who has covered the January 6th committee from its inception, really. She's written powerfully in the past about, actually, January 6th. So I am so excited that we're going to be able to be joined by her and dig into this hearing today, which was so, I, I you know, after each one of these hearings, I have just been consistently astounded by how well the committee has done. And like I said, there are a few people who understand it as well as Brandy Bookman, who writes at Daily Coast. Welcome back, Brandy. Hey, Joe, thank you so much for having me and for such a warm welcome. Well, I have to say, I am, you know, when I found out I was guest hosting and I found out that the hearing was today, I thought there's really one person I need to talk to, and that's Brandy Bookman. And I know it's been a long day for you, but let me just give us your your big picture impressions and then we'll dive in a little bit. Well, today was a very important day, um, very key day uh, to have the committee vote to subpoena Trump was very big to see all of these emails and text messages that were given to the committee by the Secret Service that showed uh, just how much the Secret Service was aware of the danger and the challenges and the violence that was looming and just sort of actively flowing around Washington at that time. And then we also saw a lot of really, you know, disturbing footage of lawmakers that were trapped uh, in the Capitol by these rioters and disturbing, yes, but also really sort of fascinating to see how these people under pressure really understood that they had to continue the certification of the election that night because it was not just like a, you know, it, it just had to be done. So it, it was it was really, really good to see folks have such a constitutional imperative and understand the moment they were in. It was a, it was a very big deal hearing today, in my opinion. Yeah, I felt the same way. And what I have felt about all these hearings is, you know, in, in advance, we've gotten a little bit of information about what we might see and hear. Mm-hmm. And it's always been way more. And like <laughs> afterwards, I have to say, I was kind of exhausted. I was like, oh, my God. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, um, and it yeah, was so it was intense. It, and you hit so many of the key points. Um, I want I want to let's start with Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, sure. because I have to say the video we saw, and it was shot by her daughter, Alexandra Pelosi, Mm -hmm. so powerful. And just her building is under attack, and she's walking through with her main focus is how do we certify the election? Talk a little bit about that. And, you know, yeah, just go ahead. I mean, that was just so critical for them to return that day. Um, It wasn't just, I think, a symbolic gesture. It wouldn't have been good enough to just say, well, let's clear the Capitol, shut it down. This is crazy. Let's come back tomorrow. This is not a regular workplace. This is the seat of democratic power. This is where the Constitution, you know, should always be upheld and always be, you know, sustained. Um, And there was a very clear understanding of what had to be done it had to be resolved. There could be no break. There could be no leaving. I don't think that there was any question that she understood, and Schumer and many others, Steny Hoyer, um, that they understood what they needed to do in order to make sure that the certification went through, that Joe Biden's electoral votes were counted, and that it was a definitive response to what the writers and what some of these uh, insurrectionists uh, and alleged seditionists were doing that day. Um, so just just huge for huge for her. And then I think also another really important thing that we saw with that was, you know, there's so much talk on the far right, especially about the conspiracies of, oh, you know, the FBI planned this, the Secret Service planned this, uh, Pelosi planned this, you know, every conspiracy theory under the sun. And especially targeting her, saying that she was at fault 
for the security failures that day. You know, we heard a lot of that from Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, everybody on the House Freedom Caucus. But what you actually see her doing in this video is quite the opposite of that, making numerous calls to governors to find out, can you send us help? Can you send us support? And this went on and on and on. So it's a very, you know it's very key to actually see that because hopefully um, by having that out there you dispel some of that conspiracy theory. Right. It was um, yeah that was really uh, I, I thought very important. And uh, one of the other things you know she was clear throughout it and she said several times that this was happening at the instigation of the president of the United States. And Mm -hmm. everybody knew, everybody knew, including her Republican colleagues on the Hill. McConnell knew, Kevin McCarthy knew. We saw some clips of them again today reminding us how they were then, which is, especially with McCarthy, much different than how how he is now. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I do, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. The other thing you mentioned, and this was, I thought uh, one of the most jarring parts was the role of the Secret Service and how much they knew in advance. I kind of feel like if I'm a member of Congress, uh, I need to dig in more into this because this is really disturbing. Yeah, you know, the Secret Service to me, um, and I'm not super familiar with the agency itself uh, and, you know, everything that they've ever done in terms of their access or transparency. I have an understanding of it, how most people have an understanding of it, which right. is it's like a black box over there. You're only going to get what they want to show you. And so we know that for Congress and for the committee, you know, the committee subpoenaed the Secret Service and they got all of these records. And... By getting all these records, you know, we still know there were some missing from January 5th and January 6th that were, you know, deleted in a, you know, so-called migration of data, is what the Secret Service had said. Um, And they had at least, you know, the decency to comply with the subpoena and provide what they provided. But what it shows us is all of these inconsistencies from the very beginning. And I had posted about this on Twitter this afternoon. Um, You know, I remembered covering in June 2021 uh, Chris Ray coming to Congress talking about the intelligence failures. I covered him talking about the threat of white supremacy. And when Representative Sheila Jackson, uh, Lee, excuse me, or Sheila Lee Jackson, excuse me, if I forgive me, I don't remember what order it is, but um, she had actually brought up to him, um, you know, what are you guys doing about this obvious white supremacist threat that we have in the ranks of these folks that attack the Capitol? And, you know, the the responses were milk toast for the most part. And it was like, uh, I think he said, well, you know, we saw something, we, we saw a bulletin, we sent a bulletin. But it was just so not um, on par with what we see was really happening at places like the Secret Service, different intelligence agencies. There were so many messages that were flying back and forth where they were showing folks like, look, this is what these are the elements that we're contending with. And as a person who lives in the area... Um, and who was from the area and who was following this very closely while it was happening and was myself aware of the danger, so much so that I had been working out logistics plannings and escape routes for myself to get in and out of D.C. that day. I mean, I just find that this raises a lot of questions. And I think that, like they said today at the committee, they're going to revisit some of the witness testimony. They're, they might recall some of these witnesses. And I don't think that they're necessarily going to drop this ball with the Secret Service anytime soon. I think that, you know, as Schiff kind of made clear today, Representative Schiff, this is something that they want to explore further because it is not consistent. Yeah, it's quite disturbing. Then there was an uh, email that was, I think, circulated by NBC, uh, an email to a senior <laughs> FBI official. And um the, the quote that stood out is there is at best a sizable percentage of the employee population that felt sympathetic to the group that stormed the Capitol. I was yeah. like, oh, my God, yeah. that is well, that you know, and there's that is so many. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead, because you've you've been up there. Talk, keep keep going, please. Well, well there's so many reports that we've been seeing, especially uh, in recent weeks. And uh, one of the police officers who was there, Michael Fanone, um, you know, he's talked about this recently in an interview that there are elements of, uh, you know, people on the police forces in Washington who still to this day do not see January 6th as anything other than, you know, a, a bad protest, you know, just maybe, maybe a little rough day. 
uh, they don't really get what happened that day. And I think that that's very telling, and I certainly don't think that that's limited to a local police force. I, I think that, um, you know, you see it in that email. There are still people who maybe necessarily don't see this in the right light, considering all the evidence that's been made available. Uh, I do want to ask you about the trial, though, because what's fascinating to me is, um, you know, one of the things we saw Cassidy Hutchinson say that Trump told Mark Meadows, I don't want people to know that we lost. This is embarrassing. So because he was embarrassed, you know, several people are dead. The Capitol was ransacked. 140 police officers were ruined, uh, injured. Many, many people are on trial. Many have been convicted. And you are watching one of the most important trials. Talk, talk, just give us some, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a big picture overview of that, too, because it's it is yeah. really it's an important one. Yes. Yeah, so today was day seven of the trial. And this past week, what we've sort of seen are, is the prosecutors just lay out the scope and present just a, an incredible amount of evidence, like so many text messages, so many emails. So much video footage, just a, a, a wild amount of all of these communications between these folks um, actively uh, and allegedly, you know, conspiring to stop the transfer of power. Um, and we've seen this dance that's sort of been happening between the prosecution and the defense where the defense is arguing that, you know, in effect, they were only trying to be in D.C. as a peacekeeping mission if they felt like Antifa or the BLM movement were to come and were to cause problems. And that's why they needed this huge stash of weapons in Virginia at the hotel that they dubbed their quick reaction force. And so the defense is working overtime to try and convince these jurors that, look, I know it looks bad, but... These guys are just here to protect people. They're just here to help people. And where they are kind of having those arguments unwound is through those text messages, uh, text messages that have been seized off of their devices by, you know, by authorities after their arrest, after their charges. Um, we're seeing the timelines not quite matching up when they're talking about, oh, well, we were just talking about going to a different rally, the Million Maga March in December, or we were talking about going to this rally. It's not matching up when they're talking about not planning for January 6th or planning for something else. It's inconsistent. So it's that same kind of thing, just like we see with all the January 6th evidence. You know, I find usually in my experience with this stuff, reality is consistent. The truth is often very consistent. And when there are lies or when there are discrepancies or things that just don't quite line up, you can do a little bit of digging and that stuff can be unwound pretty quickly. And so my hope is that jurors can see that because I do think that the case is very, very compelling. Um, I, I don't think it's an easy mountain to climb to successfully, you know, prosecute for sedition. Historically, it is not. But I think that of, of most sedition cases that have come through the courts in this country, this one has quite a bit going in the favor for the Department of Justice. Fascinating. Well, I'm just so glad uh, I actually have been monitoring it through your Twitter feed. Uh, Brandy Great. underscore Bookman. Uh, she is obviously, you guys, you've heard her. She's, and you've probably heard her before here. Just terrific. Uh, I really appreciate I know it's been a long day for you. Uh, you're writing at Daily Coast right now, which it's been such a great addition to the team there. Thank you oh, so thanks. much for taking the time tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. And I'll be back at the courthouse tomorrow at 930. So if you want to follow along again, I will be there. It's a really important trial, everybody. Um, the sedition trial of uh, Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers. Thanks so much, Brandy. It's good to talk to you. Yeah. We're going to take a break here on Tell Me Everything. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. So in the last hour, we got a, had a great conversation with Brandy Bookman from Daily Coast, who covers Capitol Hill. And she really did give us a great breakdown of the committee hearing, what it meant, what it, you know, we talked about the subpoena. But I'm also really interested in how this will matter politically. We are 26 days from November 8th. We know voters are, many states are starting to go to the polls. They're getting their ballots. I thought, who could help us unpack that? Max Burns. Max Burns, welcome back to Tell Me Everything. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, yeah, let's just talk big picture. Uh, You know, we've seen a lot of polling over the past months about that one of the key issues for many voters is defending our democracy. And today we saw quite clearly that the person who undermined our democracy basically staged a coup, knowing he had lost the election, was Donald Trump. How does this play in this moment, Max, as we are 26 days out? Well, I think the big thing that Democrats need to be running with now is this basic question of who do you trust, not just to protect democracy, but to keep this government running. And a lot of what we saw today uh, was this footage of Steve Scalise huddling around Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, listening to Nancy Pelosi's calls. Uh, And What we've really seen now is that Democrats were the ones essentially running the government when the vice president and the president were out of commission. Republicans fell back and just allowed them to to run the show. So when the chips are down and the fire is in the House, even Republicans turn to Democrats uh, to get things done right. And this is a message that we have a very short window here to really drive home. And this these hearings help that. But it's it's going to be in the hands of each of these candidates to really make sure their voters understand just how bad this was and just how well uh, we handled it. Yeah, I think that that was a piece of the hearings we didn't expect. We had we knew there was going to be video of the Roger Stone documentary. But the video that was shot by Alexander Pelosi And I played a clip earlier, Max, I don't know if you'd seen it yet, of Nancy Pelosi saying if Trump comes, she's going to punch him right in the face. She's been waiting to do it. She'll get arrested. She doesn't care. This is when before everything happened. And it was just Pelosi being tough as I'm just going to say it tough as fucking nails, which she is and which everybody knows um, who has that ever had to deal with her. But it really was quite a a powerful uh, that those those video images and just seeing her walking through the halls as a crowd is coming, literally, you you know, it was interspersed with the crowd saying, where is she? We want to get her. They wanted to kill her. Just her cool, calm and collected presence in making sure our democracy functioned was just so intense. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if these Republicans now try and, and call Nancy Pelosi out for saying she wanted to punch the president. And say, uh-huh. well, look, the Democrats are inciting violence, too. I mean, right. as the glass is being broken and these people are are forcing their way in. But it, it really is. I don't see how in good conscience uh, some of these Republicans can go out now and say Nancy Pelosi hates America. She's a hack. She's a loser. Because when the glass was flying, you know, they trusted her completely to get this resolved. And it shows you the moral bankruptcy of the GOP. It's one of the reasons why we've seen that as these hearings have gone on, uh, GOP favorability has gone down. I mean, Donald Trump's unfavorability ratings are up 
almost six, seven points since these hearings started. And that is considerable given how steady those have been since he left uh, the White House. Yeah, it's it's really been interesting. And, you know, I saw, uh, of course, it was on The New York Times, uh, an, a piece by Peter Baker today that said basically, uh, you know, it hasn't moved the needle. Uh, you know, these hearings haven't the, the, over nine public hearings. The committee has not moved the needle of public opinion. So I thought, OK, I'm going to read this to see how many polls he cites. And it, he did cite one poll, but it wasn't really addressing the issue. Um, one of the things he said was, you know, uh, it looks like no major Republican office holders have indicated they have changed their mind about Mr. Trump since the hearings began, as if that is the standard. But we saw other polls. We have seen other polls that show defending democracy is a top issue for many voters. It's certainly one of the top <clears throat> top tier issues. And we saw this summer there was some really good polling that showed unaffiliated voters were really pissed off by what Trump had done. So, like, I don't know, you know, what the you know, we know we're in a very divided country. I don't know what the media and people like Peter Baker were expecting, but we don't need to move the needle a lot. We just need to move it inches here and there and we can dramatically change the elections. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, for one, we need to stop asking Republicans what Americans think of these hearings, because, you know, right. spoiler, they're going to say that they don't care. And we, we've seen reflected in the polls that they do. There was actually just a Federalist Society poll uh, that came in that showed Donald Trump at nearly 60 percent unfavorability, one of the highest unfavorables Federalist has ever recorded for him. And that's a poll that's stacked in his favor. So it, it does show you that people are getting a little weary. But, I mean, you're also right that we're not going to see some big 20-point shift that this polarized world we're in right now, uh, my hope is that this moves enough people who are in the center, these people who maybe held their nose and voted for Donald Trump in 2016 uh, and and now are looking at this and saying, I can't do this again. I just couldn't, couldn't justify it to myself. And if we move enough of those races that are going to be decided already on such razor thin margins, we don't need a big 10 point swing. I mean, these races are going to be very close in November. And at this point, you know, seeing evidence like this, if it moves 1500 voters in some of these races, that's enough to move it to a Democrat. That's really important. And that is something we cannot overlook. And one of the things that's really, I think, strategic about this is it now puts doing the subpoena actually puts every Republican House member and every Republican candidate on the spot. Would you vote for the subpoena of Donald Trump? Make them answer the question. Most of them, a big chunk of the Republican caucus, many of whom are running for election, are election deniers and voted to overturn the election anyways. But there are some who try to portray themselves as more moderate. I, I'm thinking of like Alan Fung up in the second district of Rhode Island. He's trying to portray himself as a moderate Republican. Uh, dude, your first vote will be for Kevin McCarthy as speaker. And if you win, you empower Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I think Democrats really need to drive that point home, much as they're doing with abortion. Like it's it's like the same people who are taking your rights away want to take away your democracy. Yeah. And Kevin McCarthy, who, by the way, in that video is invisible, you know, a speaker who will be great as long as no crisis at all comes up in the next few years. But I think you're right. I mean, I get the optics of of doing this subpoena now. I wish, honestly, they had done it earlier because mm -hmm. Donald Trump is nothing if not the king of the legal delay. And my worry is that by not doing it early, we're going to be in a position where Trump is fighting this in court until January and then Republicans just wrap up the hearings. But we've also given these Republicans such a free pass. Uh, to your point, we need reporters, we need Democrats and voters asking every single Republican what they think of this. Do they support the subpoena? If Donald Trump is said, as he says all the time, that he would love to come and talk, why are so many Republicans suddenly saying they don't like that idea? If we hold them accountable, we see voters respond. It's that we've allowed them to avoid these tough questions for so long 
that they've forgotten what accountability feels like. And it's going to be so critical when we want to move these voters. Absolutely right. And, and I have to say, Max, I was watching when I was watching today, I thought, you know, it was a very I, I would have liked to have done it sooner, too. But it was a very strategic move to do it now because it does plop this issue right in the middle of the elections. You know, we have seen that when Trump isn't on the ballot, uh, his voters don't necessarily show up. And but it's a reminder to our voters of the danger that he is to our democracy and to those swingy voters who are wondering, you know, how they're going to fall. And I just kind of feel like when Chairman Thompson handed handed the mic over to his vice chair, Liz Cheney, I thought, okay, Liz Cheney is as ruthless as they come in Washington. She's lost her race now. She has no fucks to give. She knows exactly what she's doing with this. And she is looking at all of the members of her caucus who voted her out of her job and who campaigned against her. And she's looking at them saying, here's part of my revenge. Here's part of my revenge. That's what it felt like to me. Of course, I'm a little Machiavellian, but I wouldn't put anything past Cheney's. Well, and I'll tell you, as someone who came into politics with the the anti-Iraq war movement, it is bizarre for me to see a Cheney doing things that I agree with and and actually prosecuting this case in a very effective and very earnest way. Uh, I, I still wouldn't vote for her, but I think that she's done the nation a great service. And it shows you that Democrats can work across the aisle with the few remaining Republicans who are interested in country over party. But it goes back to this idea that we need to hold these Republicans accountable. And we've seen from these hearings that if nothing else, uh, they don't hold up well to pointed questions when they're under oath. And we've seen from not just from this hearing, but from these leaks coming out of Mar-a-Lago about classified documents, that a lot of people are very eager to tell their story. We just need to reach out and give them the platform. And that's something that I think we're going to start to see a lot more of in the run up to November. Max Burns, let me just ask you before you go. I always love talking to you, too. It's one of the great treats of hosting for John. Is it's a pleasure. Uh, what, <laughs> thank you. What, what, what are the things you're keeping an eye on these last 26 days as we approach um, November 8th? What, what are some of the things that are going to uh, give you a sense of how, how things are playing? So I am actually looking for the first round of polls to come out that are uh, polling on the marijuana reforms that Joe mm-hmm. Biden has put forward. These are wildly popular. I'm talking 70 percent bipartisan approval, even in red states where places like North Dakota and Wyoming are voting by huge margins to legalize marijuana, to to reform their criminal justice system. This is an issue that doesn't just affect people who want to smoke weed. This has the potential to build a new coalition between Republicans in red states and Democrats. And and some, there's a reason that Republicans have fought so hard to keep this issue off of the agenda. And I think we'll see a real bump from it. Yeah, I, I think that's a really that's really good. First of all, I have to say I was on a call when that news was announced and I saw it on Twitter because, of course, I was on a call. So I was looking at Twitter. I was on a Zoom call and I thought someone must have had it wrong. I, I, I couldn't believe that Biden announced that policy. It was so great, but it was such a surprise. And I agree with you. And I think when you look at the states where these referenda have legalization referenda have passed, it has passed in red states. It has passed overwhelmingly. It's on the ballot in several states uh, this coming up uh this cycle too. Um, yeah, that's going to be really interesting. And hopefully it's the kind of thing that will continue to motivate. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, this is going to motivate young people. It's not just young people that smoke weed, everybody. It's so much uh, more. It, right? The majority right. of The majority of federal possession convictions uh, are people who live in red states. And Joe Biden right. essentially, by pardoning them, has given them a chance to get a mortgage, to get a job, to get loans. He's given these people their life back, and they're not going to forget that. Well, I hope so, and I hope they show up and make it clear on the ballot. And the other thing is, 
just as um, just uh, the, the coda to that is, of course, Democrats need to challenge Republicans because Republican it is mostly Republican orthodoxy that they will not support something like that. So put that in the equation to Democratic candidates. Max Max Burns, always really a a, a real treat to talk to you. The Max Burns on Twitter. Uh, Thanks for joining us tonight. It was I really I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. All right. We'll talk again soon, I hope. This is Joe Sudbay. I'm guest hosting for John Fugelsang tonight here on Tell Me Everything. We're going to take a break and then we're going to get back on the phones. Welcome back indeed to Tell Me Everything here on SiriusXM Progress. As I mentioned for the break, I'm really excited because... This week, Daniel Nishinian, who's the editor-in-chief of Bolts Magazine, many of you know him on Twitter as Daniel, published his What's on the Ballot for 2022. 468 elections to watch closely up and down the ballot. If you're a political geek, which I know so many of you are, this is like, this is like catnip. And I am really glad that Daniel stayed up late tonight to join us to talk about it. Welcome back to the show, Daniel. Hi, it's, it's, a, ple- it's a pleasure to join you. All right. So um, what's on the ballot? 468 elections, and you have them broken down, Senate, governor, referendum, statewide offices. You know what? I, what I'd like to do is start with the referendum, because I was just talking to Bill in Orlando about marijuana 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 legalization and how florida passes progressive legislation that would probably pass it literally drug policies on the ballot in a number of states talk a little bit about that yeah um no it's it, it's always fun fun to compile um this this resources page because um you know a lot of people i think lo- learn a lot about what's happening in their own states, uh, in states around the country on issues that they really care about. Um, for instance, there, there's a part of the page that, as you just described, that's about drug, uh, that, but that's about the referendum specifically on, on drugs, but also, you know, if you're interested in transportation and housing and abortion and taxes and education, there's, there's, there's so much happening and, and we've tried to organize it to help, to help people, um, to help people sort of, navigate the, the chaos of the election in a way that that really makes a little more a little more sense because you know there's so many states so many municipalities so many counties some so many so many elections to be following and uh you're right that one one um, theme that we're seeing this year uh, to your to your question specifically is referendums on on drugs on legalizing um specifically in most cases uh, marijuana but what's particularly interesting is that in um, almost all of the states that have uh, marijuana-related referendums to legalize the possession and sales of marijuana, in most of them we're talking about very conservative states. We're talking about states that voted for Trump very overwhelmingly, like uh, Arkansas, for instance, or uh, Missouri, or, uh, or, or North Dakota, and um, and 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 that's and that's obviously uh, interesting as you were just talking about. We have seen other states that are very conservative um, support this initiative in particular in the past, um, and uh, and and it's this is happening obviously a week after President President Biden uh, pardoned people with marijuana conviction at the federal level. And and so there's definitely this kind of this sense of an emerging consensus, I think, around uh, marijuana legalization. And we will see again in a few weeks whether uh, in, in the red states where it's on the ballot, whether that that is going to cross the finish line. You know, um, it, one, of the, one of the states that I'm always intrigued by uh, when it comes to ballot measures is South Dakota, where legalization of marijuana is on the ballot. And it was in 2020 as well. Mm-hmm. And the courts struck it down. Uh, Republicans, you know, led by the governor, um, Christy Nome, basically got it blocked and now it's coming back. And one of the things you've pointed out in your reporting is that this is now an issue in the gubernatorial 
grace. Talk a little bit about that, because I, I think this is one of those things that uh, I was talking in the last hour to Max Burns about how Democrats need to lean in on this. And the, certainly Jamie Smith, the Democratic nominee in South Dakota, is doing that. Right. Um, so our, our, my, my colleague, Alex Burnett, actually wrote, wrote a story today on, uh, on the states with, with, with drug referendums specifically. And uh, he, he's reporting, yeah, was mentioning that uh, <laughs> the governor candidate is leaning in on this. What's specifically interesting there, as you were saying, is that the governor was actually the governor, Noam, was the person who helped sue the referendum that passed in 2020 um, that, that legalized marijuana and, and then the state court we struck it down, and now there's a redo on on slightly different in, in a slightly different way to get around the the court ruling. And um, and and what's even more relevant is that there was another effort er- earlier this year that the governors also supported to make it more difficult to pass that initiative in the future. Um, by which I mean that. Um, Republicans in South Dakota, but also, frankly, in other states, have been quite upset that the ballot initiative route is available to people to put these more progressive initiatives on the ballot and then have them pass. So we've seen that in a lot of states. In Florida, you were just talking about. And there there was a measure on the ballot in June during the primary season to make it harder in the future to pass initiatives. And that actually, that, that initiative to make it harder to pass initiatives uh, failed by a lot in June, which which is still going to make it, uh, which is effectively going to keep this route open. Um, and another measure that's on the ballot in, in that particular state in South Dakota in June is a measure to expand Medicaid, um, expand Medicaid in South Dakota, which would effectively open the door to insurance uh, to 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 go- government insurance for uh, for uh, thousands of people in that state. This is the Medicaid expansion under the ACA. So that's also a very important referendum to, to be watching in, in a few weeks. And, and, and again, that's another measure that has passed Medicaid expansion. Won't make it through Republican legislatures, but did pass in states like Oklahoma and Missouri when the voters voted on it. Um, really interesting. Daniel, um, you know, we, we all talk about uh, we have been for the past months talking about how abortion is on the ballot. It literally was on the ballot in Kansas. And I think a lot of a, a lot of people were surprised by that result, the, the, the just the huge margin. Um, so literally abortions on the ballot in several states. We can let's talk about that. But then I want to dive into something that you have you and your colleagues at Bolts magazine have been so good at is reporting where. Obviously, it's on the ballot for every United States Senate race and United States House race, but it's also on the ballot, governor's races and AG races. And we just earlier tonight, we talked to Josh Call, who's the attorney general of Wisconsin. But let's start with what states it's on the ballot, and then we'll dive into how other races um, where it's on the ballot and specific kinds of races. Yeah, yeah. Um, So you're right that the most obvious way in to think about how abortion is all about is the referendums that that really are going to shape the fate of abortion policy, uh, you know, very, very immediately. And really the place to start, the place to focus on is Michigan. Um, Why there's actually five states where where there's some some measure related to abortion on the ballot in a referendum. But Michigan is really the, the important one because Michigan currently in the books on the books has a has a ban on abortion. It has not gone into effect be, be, be because because of the court system in Michigan, because uh, the governor and other um, abortion uh, and other people who support abortion access have have sued over the ban. But that ban is, re, re, remains in the air. It's held up in court. But it's very possible to imagine uh, in, in very short order that the courts would allow that ban to go into effect. And so the referendum in November in Michigan would enshrine abortion access in the state in the state constitution and effectively overturn the the ban that is on the books and kind of take care of the issue. We're talking about a very large state. We're talking about a swing state. We're talking about a state where Republicans have power. So it would be tremendously uh, impactful, really, for the lives of so many people if that one particular referendum passes. The polls suggest it's going to pass. Uh, it has it has a wide lead in the polls, but it's still clearly one of one of the stories of of election season. And then there's other other um, other states where uh, 
there's there's some form of referendum initiative on the ballot in um, California and Vermont could become the first states uh, alongside Michigan to actually put abortion access on, on their state constitution. Now, there is no immediate threat to access to abortion in, in those states, but, you know, who knows, right? Uh, it's, it's important duty for people in, in those states to have put, put it on the ballot and to really want to enshrine it. Um, and then, and then, yeah, and then, well, actually, one one interesting one to to maybe uh, focus on as well is Alaska. So uh, Alaska is actually a, a conservative leaning state. Republicans do have a fair amount of power there, but the state courts have decided there have ruled that the state constitution protects abortion. And so there's a referendum this year that is that is about whether or not Alaska should call. A constitutional convention. That's the referendum that exists in Alaska every 10 years. Um, and it's not technically about abortion, but it's sort of become a proxy, a proxy battle about abortion, because conservatives think that if they manage to win that vote and organize a constitutional convention to sort of open the door to amendments to the state constitutions, they think that's going to be a backdoor to amending the Constitution and banning abortion in Alaska. And I think that's like, important to highlight because what it really gets to, I think, is just like the, there's so many ways, right? There's so many ways where these issues are right now being fought over. And um, in, in the case of Alaska, the right really knows that it has to find, the, it, 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 it's trying to find a way in. In all other states, it's sort of the where, where, um, Proponents of abortion access are more on the defensive. The roles are sort of reversed. And we're seeing um, governor races, um, AG races. I think you, were, you just said you talked about. We're seeing VA races, sheriff races in, re- in redder states or in states with bans where candidates are trying to get creative about what it means to defend abortion rights in a context where, where it's very difficult because the ban exists and, and so on. And... Um, and so, yeah, to your point, I think there's there's a lot of interesting prosecutor races, for instance, to be watching because prosecutors are going to be at the front lines of deciding whether or not to bring charges in cases of abortion in 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 redder states and states with bans. And uh, and we are seeing in places like uh, Iowa, um, in places like Florida, we are seeing candidates at the local level try and make this an issue as well and try and promise that they will be a shield um, in cases of criminalization. Look, I, I just, you know, I love it. It's um, what's on the ballot at boltsmag.org. Uh, you'll find it. What's on the ballot? It's really great. I'm going to tweet out the link right now to Daniel Nishinian, editor in chief at Bolts Mag, on Twitter at Daniel. Obviously, just th- th- what's on the ballot is an amazing resource. Daniel, as you just heard, is an unbelievably amazing resource and uh, a good friend and i'm so glad we could talk tonight thank you for taking the time and staying up late to join us thanks for having me all right we'll talk again soon